the deity of Julius Caesar, his adoptive father, and, uh, and as his son permitted himself to be called the son of God, thus setting the stage for being deified after his death. Caesar Augustus also accepted the title of Savior and was honored for having brought peace to all the world. One inscription about him reads, Divine Augustus Caesar, Son of God, Savior of all the world. Yet, that little baby in the manger whose birth is linked with Caesar Augustus was the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, and the Savior. I'd like to change that and say he is. Mm -hmm. um, to whom do you look as your Savior? Is it a politician? technology, the latest wonder drug, or is it the baby in the manger? If it is Jesus, do you see him as an example to follow as your Lord and Savior to trust? And then they quote Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. These will be his royal titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His ever-expanding peaceful government will never end. He will rule forever with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David. The passionate commitment of the Lord Almighty will guarantee this. Stumbling block for... Yeah, man, I'm for everybody. I just, mm -hmm. boy, it's, it's stumbling block for Stephen Hawkins. Um, let's see here. Got an email from Mike Wilson. His wife, Andrea, cannot eat without pain, and they cannot get answers as to why. So uh, we want to pray for them. And then we have Linda, who had rotator cuff surgery on Tuesday, and she looked okay yesterday, and Jim seems to think she's all right today, but keep her in prayer just so we don't get any infection and we don't get any side effects or anything like that. Ornery as ever. What's that? Ornery as ever. Ornery as ever. That would be Linda. Ornery as ever. I didn't say if that. I'm just acknowledging what he said. And uh, <laughs> then I noticed that Blake is not here again, so he wasn't here on Sunday, and I'm wondering if he is sick. So we'll, we'll raise up Blake in prayer as well. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, you know the uh, people that uh, uh, are struggling, and uh, we've named a couple of them. We have others that go unnamed but uh, are not unknown to you, and so we would pray for them. We also pray for those in this church that are here right now that are struggling with cancer, that you would uh, heal their bodies if it is your desire, and if not, to uh, be with them. Let them know that you're an ever-present help in their time of need and that you will guide them to the shore where uh, there will be no pain and there will be no trials or troubles. But we would pray that it wouldn't be that way at this time. We don't want to miss our friends and we don't want to miss our loved ones. We ask that you would tenderly care for those who are in pain and, and to just restore them to health. But your will be done in all things. And we thank you for this class that we can meet together, that we can discuss your word and to share in it and to hopefully exalt it so that what we say is proper, that it is right, and that it does not deviate from your intent for it. And of course, nobody is perfect in doctrine, but we would certainly hope that those who hear the word would check what is said and would evaluate it according to uh, interpretation within Scripture itself, letting Scripture interpret Scripture rather than going outside of it and finding a, an answer to something they don't understand there. And Lord, we thank you for this chance to meet. We thank you and we praise you for it, and we love you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh, somebody just walked in. Who was that? Oh, hello. How are you? I was wondering if that's my mom, because I got something for her, and I've been trying to give it to her for over a week and a half now, and she faithfully does not show up during the Lenten season, which is bizarre to me. And uh, so there you go. She's, I'm talking about on Sundays. 
Yeah, so, yeah, she's given me up for Lent. Well, okay, I'll agree with that. I, I can agree with that. If you're going to uh, observe Lent, you might as well give up your son. So there you go. Um, we are now. Oh, before we go on, let's uh, real quickly. I'm, I'm not going to read it today, but I got to tell you what, we could do 400 Bible studies on this. Burke handed me the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. This was back in 1974. He said they uh, came together and they wrote a statement, uh, affirmations, articles of affirmation and denial. So they affirm what they believe about Scripture, and then they deny what is said about Scripture. It's very good. It's very well written. I haven't completed the whole thing. But, um, uh, it, you know, there's something about statement of faiths and things like this that nobody ever reads them. I mean, it's just what, when I was at Grace Baptist, and I like to read statement of faith because that's what I think is important. But at Grace Baptist, I asked the people in the Bible class that we had, does anybody know the statement of faith? And nobody had read it. So we did it as a Bible class one time. And another problem with statement of faith is that people, if you go to the statement of faith of a church, 99.367% of them have been cut and pasted from other people. They just, yeah, that sounds good. And they put it up there. And that's our statement of faith. So they don't even know what they put up there. But this is not really a statement of faith in that way is that they've actually gone and they've analyzed an issue and they've put it into um, uh, statements that they affirm and that they deny. And it, it's very well done. Um, I'll just pick one right now. And like I say, we could go through one a week or something in the future, but I'm just going to pick um, uh, Article 5. We affirm that God's revelation in the Holy Scriptures was progressive. In other words, God progressively reveals himself. That's why when I teach on the Nephilim, I teach that, it is exactly what I say in my uh, uh, sermon, and if you want to see what the Nephilim are, go and watch that sermon. It is not angels sleeping with men. That Bible does not progressively reveal that. It has to be inserted in the scripture. It is incorrect. Anyway, um, they deny that later revelation, which may fulfill earlier revelation, ever corrects or contradicts it. We further deny that any normative revelation has been given since the completion of the New mm -hmm. Testament writing. So I'm going to read that last part again so everybody understands because I completely, completely support that. We deny that any normative revelation, meaning the Word of God, Scripture, and I've said this a million times in this class, people have misunderstood me, you know, but anyway, normative revelation, something that should be a part of God's word. God has said, God saith, God has spoken, something that should be a part of scripture. Any normative revelation has been given since the completion of New Testament writings. It has not. The apostles and the prophets laid the foundation. That's explicit in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, might be 1 Corinthians. Anyway, and then it says that Jesus Christ is the foundation elsewhere meaning that the word of the prophets and the apostles tells of Jesus Christ. That is, he is the cornerstone, he is the foundation. There is one foundation, and there is no further foundation. No normative uh, revelation has been given. Anybody that says that the Lord told me, and it's something that is on line with Scripture, it's not true, okay? The Lord may have put something on our heart to do something. The Lord may have uh, influenced us by reading scripture to do something, etc. I have no problem with that. But the Lord has not given us something that is authoritative, thus says the Lord, that becomes a part of what scripture determines. Hasn't happened, and that is also a very wise thing to put into that statement of faith because it contradicts the Catholic Church, who says that they have divine inspiration, and they write out a papal bull, it is divinely inspired, it is infallible, 
That is absolutely nonsense. Anything can mean anything once you get beyond Scripture. No, absolutely not. So, anyway. Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. The five solas. Anybody? Sola Scriptura. Uh, Christos. Sola Christos. Uh, in Christ uh, alone. Grace. Uh, sola Fide. Sola Gratia. Faith. That's right. Faith and then Sola Fide. And, um, to the glory Gloria. of... Uh, yes, De thank you. Deo Gloria. De Soli Deo Gloria. To the mm -hmm. glory of God alone. Those are your five solas. And if you stick with those, that doesn't have to be, you know, the Bible does proclaim it, but it's not something that you absolutely have to remember. But if you stick with that, you will never go wrong in your doctrine. By faith alone, by grace alone, by scripture alone, and um, by Christ or in Christ alone and to the glory of God alone. If you stick by that as your marching orders, you will not err. You start getting into anything outside of that and error will get introduced. So, very good. Romans 10.5. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. Oh, see? One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is, don't look, where is it? Anybody? Leviticus 18. 18. Five. He's got it. Good job. Leviticus 18.5. You know what? If, if you just remember that verse for the whole book of Leviticus. Now, I would say that the uh, overall theme of the book of Leviticus is found in Leviticus 11, which is um, uh, speaking of the holiness of God. But the, to me, the, the important point that we should remember from Leviticus, because it's a part of the law, is that the man who does these things will live by them. Okay, And as I said, in, in when we did that particular uh, verse, well, we'll talk about it here. I, I don't think I have in my comments, though. But in that particular verse in the Hebrew, it says, the man who does these things will live by them. It is a clear reference to Jesus Christ. He's the only one that could do these things. And uh, so there you go. Um, okay, uh, I see mom is late, so I'm gonna embarrass her in front of everybody. I've been meaning to give that to you for weeks and you keep not showing up. But I, I, we discovered the reason why you don't come on Sundays. I said, you, you don't come for Lent. And Jim says, yes, she's given up her son for Lent. And I said, well, I can, I can agree with that. Um, so there we go. Even though I don't think Lent has any purpose at all in the world, I can agree with that. So here we go. We're going to read uh, my comments on Romans 10.5. Paul now describes the righteousness, which is of the law. Okay. Where does righteousness under the law come from? He describes the righteousness of the law. In doing so, he won't make up any new concept of it in order to make a claim against it. It's not going to do that. Instead, he is going to go to the law itself, as he always does. What does it say here? For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. He goes back to Scripture. Notice how he doesn't say Scripture in this point. He implies that Moses is authoritative. That's right. It is Scripture. You'll see... Uh, it'll say the Old Testament or the book of uh, whatever uh, Deuteronomy says. It'll say Moses said, uh, Scripture says, etc. They're always tying the, the, the concept into one thing. They all mean the same thing. They all mean that Scripture is divinely inspired. Uh, that would take us right back to their first or maybe their second point in the Chicago Statement of Faith. Absolutely a wonderful, wonderful document. I recommend you go online and read it. Like I said, maybe we'll just go through one point a week, but it is really good. It's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and you can look it up online and you can just read it. But like I said, maybe we should just do one point a week because it's so important to understand what they say. It is very well thought out. Okay, um, before looking at that, before looking at what we just said about um, uh, Scripture, okay, Moses, it would be good to understand the progression of what Paul is saying. 
Okay, this will establish why he is citing this. Notice the term, what, what did it begin with in this verse? For, yes, thank you, F-O-R, for, not F-O-U-R, F-O-R. Okay, so he says for, and the following verses, uh, we're gonna look for for in the following verses and see how he builds upon each thought. We're gonna go back a couple verses from to Romans 10, verse one. For I bear them witness, speaking of the Jews, that they have a zeal for God, uh, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I'm going to go back. I'm going to actually read the very beginning of it. I don't want to skip the beginning part either. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That first word isn't what I'm speaking of. It's just a part of the sentence, okay? But he's speaking about Israel, and he's speaking that he, his heart's desire and prayer is that they may be saved. He is not speaking about the church. I made a very strong point about that when we talked about that in Romans 10, 1. Okay, you have to keep that in mind. The church is not Israel in Paul's mind. It never is. It takes a giant leap of misunderstanding to suddenly say that the church is Israel, and he's speaking about the church when he's speaking about Israel. It's a complete misunderstanding of Scripture. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He does not equate the church with Israel. He doesn't there. He never does. Okay, now we're going to go on. Four, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Okay, can that be applied to the church? No, because we have the knowledge that he is speaking of, which is Jesus Christ. That's right. So he's not speaking about the church. He is speaking about Israel. He has made a complete <laughs> dividing line between the two. For again, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Can that be applied to the church? No, because the entire premise of the church is that we have submitted to God's righteousness, meaning Jesus Christ, his full revelation of himself. So that cannot be used as a verse in that sense either. Okay, it cannot be. All right, the next four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Everybody that is in the church, and I'm talking about the true church, I'm not talking about people that come to church, I'm talking about the people that Paul is addressing, for it is a believer. That's how we become a member of the church, is we believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Once again, you cannot equate Israel with the church. He doesn't do it. He never does it. The church and Israel are distinct. And then you get to the next four. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things <laughs> shall live by them. Romans 10, 1 through 5. Okay? Four, in verse 5, is explaining verse 3 and which is built upon in verse 4. And so he says, for Moses writes. The law was received by Moses, and within that law is a note concerning the necessity to follow the very same law in order to obtain righteousness, which is of the law. And what is that note? It is Leviticus 18, verse 5. Once again, if you can remember one verse from the book of Leviticus, I think that would be the one you would want to, okay? Leviticus 11, and I, I'm not remembering the exact verse right now, gives you the main theme of the book of Leviticus, the holiness of God. But this verse here is the verse that if you remember your theology in the New Testament, 
Leviticus 18.5 is the one that you want to remember because everything stems around Leviticus 18.5 in our relationship with God. Everything. Okay? Or, as Paul paraphrases, the man who does those things shall live by them. God promised life to any person who could keep the law. In fact, it was a guarantee of right standing and a ticket to the fullness of his blessing if it could be done. Okay, during the sermon that I did on Leviticus 18, I said to live is to not die. The man who does these things will live by them. It is a guarantee. If you do the things of the law, you will not die. That's implied in there. It doesn't say it explicitly. It says the man who does these things will live by these by them, okay? But the implication is that the man who does these things will not die. That is what is implied in that verse. Right. Just okay. like if somebody does something, they will die, which implies they will not They will not live. Exactly. You could take the opposite and you could uh, ascribe it and you get the same result. The man who does these things will live by them. Okay. Now, here's my question before I go on in my notes. Is there anybody in the Old Testament from the time of Moses writing that, receiving it from the Lord and writing it? From that time, is there any person recorded in Scripture all the way through the Old Testament that is still alive today? No, no not one of them. Every single one of them, including David, a man after God's own heart. Mm -hmm. Hey, his tomb is still there in Jerusalem, right? Even Acts Lazarus. chapter 2 or 3 Lazarus or 4. Yeah, Lazarus true. was brought up. That was a reanimation. It wasn't a resurrection. True. Uh, just he, like he the, still died. He still died again. That's right. 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 Okay. The man who does these things will live by them. None of them lived. None of them. They're all dead. Okay. However, however, one man did do the things of the law, right? And he died, but he came back out of death, couldn't hold him. So he died for what? Our sins. Our sins, not his own sins. Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that it was impossible that death could hold him. He had no sin of his own. The man who does these things will live by them, and he lived by them. The, the uh, doctrine, you should say, or I would say, of the New Testament says that if you are in Christ, he has in your place fulfilled the law he it, this is the doctrine of substitution he has done what we cannot do his righteousness is imputed to us now here's a question are we going to die yes absolutely yes. but we will live forever that's a promise in john chapter 6 i believe it is anyway but we are guaranteed of go ahead what were you going to say? say unless we're raptured then. yeah unless we're raptured okay there is a point where some people will never die okay but the mode of life right now is that we are in christ but we still die okay this is part of god's plan we suffer we die however we will live forever there is no spiritual death in us and there's no physical death in us after we are resurrected or after we are raptured it is a done deal the wages of sin is death and that is speaking explicitly and uh, or I'm sorry that is speaking implicitly of spiritual death not right. physical death our physical death is a result of our spiritual death Adam sinned and it says on the day that you uh, eat of the fruit you shall surely die right did he die on the day he ate of the fruit no, no. no. okay because it was a spiritual death right because what physically no physically no he spiritually died absolutely so he died on the day that that happened and death has entered into the stream of humanity and all people die because of Adam's sin. Okay, everybody's got that. Everybody understands that. That is what Paul is speaking about. The man who does these things will live by them. Nobody has done these things until Christ. We are in Christ. 
but we are still under the dispensation of dying until the point where Christ takes us out of here. And then it is, it is as impossible for us to stay in the grave as it was impossible for Christ to stay in the grave if you were redeemed by the Lord. It is as impossible. There is an absolute guarantee that you will rise again. If anybody has doubts on their deathbed in this church saying, I just, I'm, my faith is weakening, I'm going to be very upset at you. And when, I, when I'm standing at your deathbed, or if you stand at mine and I do that, and I start having, you know, getting scared, I want you to get upset at me. I'll because it is, what's that? I'll slap you. Uh, you slap me, please. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, you know, it was uh, John Knox, I believe, that was dying. And uh, he said to his wife, read me my anchor once again, one more time. And it was a, a verse from the book of John. And uh, it was his guarantee that he will rise again. He, he On his deathbed, he had no fear at all. He knew that it would come. All right. And this is, this is what we should have, the confidence in our life, despite the pains, despite the trials, despite all of the, the terrible things that happen in our life. The one thing that we should cling to with absolute assurance, if we claim to be believers in Christ, is that we are going to be raised because we are in Christ. That is what it means to be in Christ, is that he possesses us completely and holy forever. We've, uh, we've lost a few people this year. We've lost and a couple people this year. Yeah. I uh, have to say that what went out. Fully assured. Fully assured. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing I can guarantee you about Paul. He never lost his testimony, even when he was right towards the end. He did not lose his testimony at all. He was absolutely sure. You know, he did have some questions. He said, what do you think it'll be like and this and that? And, you know, of course, you, yeah. you start wondering about those things. But it was a positive question. It wasn't a negative question in any way, shape or form. He was ready. I'm ready. If I get run over today, I hope nobody grieves. You just rejoice. Okay, so um, uh, where was I? Leviticus uh, 18.5. Paul paraphrases it, but um, we'll go on. But the fact that it, it, the fact is that no one was, or even today is, capable of such a thing, meaning the man who does these things will live by them. More so, no one is capable of obeying even the first commandment perfectly. Nobody. And with Jesus' word showing that intent is the same as execution, Matthew 5, 27. Let me read that. We'll just go there really quickly. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. We'll see what Jesus says about this. Because if intent is the same as execution, boy, that is a problem. Uh, Matthew 25, 15, 14, 11. Okay, here we are. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, Right? But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Intent is the same to God as execution. Has anybody ever here intended to swear? I'm not asking if you swore out. Uh, actually, you said a bad word or something, but I got some cringe faces over here. Has anybody ever intended to lie? Even if yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's raising his hand, confirming. Yes. Yeah. We've all intended to do all these yes. things. Right. And to the Lord, intent is the same as execution. That's explicit from Jesus' words, okay? Intent is the same as execution. We have utterly, utterly failed in any hopes of keeping any portion of the law. Not one of us has fully loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not, uh, we've all put up idols in our heart. We've done all of these things. I'm not trying to accuse anybody. No, it's a, no, it's no. a universal thing, all of us, Human okay? Nature. Human nature, okay? So, the law shows that in order to be right with God, one must live in a right manner before God. And then the law turns around and shows that no one can live in a right manner before God. Right? This is why Paul calls in the book of Galatians the law what? Begins with B, ends with bondage. 
Uh, it's a heavy yoke, okay, right? All right. It, it, it's it, it's bondage, and it, the intent was not to it for it to be a means to an end. It was intended to show us how utterly sinful sin is, how desperately we need Jesus, how glorious Jesus is that He could do what we couldn't do, how wonderful and graceful Jesus is for taking what we deserve on Himself. All of these things. That was the intent of the law. The law was intended to lead us right to the feet of Jesus Christ. Okay, so. Um, it shows that nobody could do it, and because of this, blood sacrifices were needed as a form of grace to protect against the penalties of the very law that they were described in. Everybody got that? They're described, the, the uh, sacrifices are in the law, and yet they were needed for the law that they were described in, because even the sacrifices were sinful by the people. They read the Old Testament and how he says, I, I abhor your sacrifices, right? He, they would come to him with the wrong heart. In the book of Malachi, let me see if I can read this, find this really quickly and read it to you. Um, Malachi. Uh, bringing this to the governor. Yes. What, is that what? Malachi 3, 2, 1? Um, 3, I think. 3, I think so too. That's why I started with 3, but we'll get there really quickly. Let's see here. Uh, pleasant. Uh, uh, due to tithes and offerings, okay, anyway, uh, spoken against, um, you know, anyway, what he says is, um, that's not it right there, that's not it, okay, no, it's it's one, but I thought it was three, too, it says, um, uh, you offer defiled food on my altar, this is the sacrifices that they were required to give, right, but, I, uh, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. They didn't actually say that, but their actions said it. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, something outlawed under the law, but they did it anyway, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Isaiah says, I'm tired of your sacrifices, your burnt offerings, and your holy days, and all of these things. Why? Not because he didn't institute them and he wanted to do them, but because they did it with the wrong attitude, they did it with the wrong intent, and they did it perversely by offering profane sacrifices before the Lord. So this is all a part of the law. Even the sacrifices that were mandated under the law were not acceptable because the people themselves were not acceptable. So... Um, uh, where is it? Something more was needed to be right before God. Something apart from the law. Because everything that we've seen about the law is tainted. Because the people are tainted. So something apart from the law itself. And, you know, when we did the uh, uh, sermons on the ordination of Aaron, we saw how absolutely defiled man is. Even before the law had been fully incorporated because of the institution of Aaron and his ordination, they'd already blown it. Right? It just unbelievable how the law points to its own insufficiency. But this righteousness involves a person, not a deed. This is what the law actually anticipated, and it is found in Jesus, Christ Jesus. That's right. Okay? Verse 10, 6. 6. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is, to bring Christ down. Okay, I'm going to read mine. It's just a little bit different. They added in a couple words for clarity. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is, to bring Christ down from above. Okay, you're, it's like you're grabbing his ankles and pulling them down. To contrast the preceding verse, which spoke of actively doing deeds... 
to attain righteousness of the law, which is what the law demands, the man who does these things will live by them, Paul begins with, but. One would think that by showing a contrast, he would remove himself from the law and initiate a new discourse apart from it. He doesn't. Instead, where does he go? He goes right back to the law itself once again. He goes to the very same law which he just cited. He goes to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Let me take you there really quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 30. I want to read you verse 11 through 14. 30 verse 11. For this commandment, which I command you today, this is Moses speaking. He's giving the repeating of the law before the people go into the land of Israel. I command you this day is not too mysterious for you, nor it is far off, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Verse 14, but the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. All right? So Paul is actually going back to the law that he's already kind of dismissed in his previous verse. And so in verse 10, 6, he cites a portion of this passage. But the righteousness of faith, Paul says, literally, of faith righteousness in the Greek. He has personified righteousness and then causes it to describe itself. The righteousness of faith speaks this way, okay? This is Paul. He is a master author. It is an ingenious way of showing us the source of righteousness. He's very, very clear with his words. You know, this is one of the things, I'm not going to read it, but one of the things that the Chicago Statement of Faith talked about is that um, these are God's words. This is the word of God. This is inspired by God. This is exactly what he wanted us to receive, okay? And yet, Paul wrote this, and we can tell Paul's style in there. Paul was not forced to write these things. He wrote what was in him that he knew from his knowledge, from all of the wellspring that he had in his life, his uh, training as a Pharisee, and yet it is exactly what God wanted us to see. It's very important to understand that. We should go through these inspiration verses one at a time or articles, and it will help you to understand what it means when we say the Bible is the inerrant word of God because people will take it and they'll twist it just a little bit, just a little bit, so that you have this, this uh, little bit of yeast in your mind about the Word of God. They've done a very good job on this, so I'll try to remember to do one a week after this. Anyway, um, 1060 cites about the righteousness of faith. Far too often we look to the distant as better than what is near, right? We say in uh, our idiom in uh, English, we say the grass, is, green. is always green or on the other side, right? Okay, right. That's kind of the idea here. We look to the distant better than what is right near to us. The saying that, oh, I, right here, the grass grows greener on the other side of the fence shows us this. So I'm thinking what I wrote months ago or years ago. Uh, from that springboard, we look at the more distant the fence, the greener the grass, right? Oh, those mountains over there are just beautiful. I'll give you an example so that you can think this one through. When you see a mountain that's totally covered in grass, it looks green and beautiful, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. But if you go, or even let's say we're driving down US 41. Right now I know it's, it's still kind of winter and so the grass isn't beautiful. But in the summer you drive down US 41 and in the middle of the lanes are Baha'i grass, right? And they grow up and they get a little V on there and it's real pretty and it's green. And they're waving in the, uh, the, uh, the wind. And it's just beautiful, right? And you think, isn't that beautiful? And then you get out of your car because you've got to pick something up and you know, something blows off the back of your truck and you get into the grass and you see 
a little bit of garbage somebody threw, or you see a mound of ants, and you see all of these things that it's not as pretty as when you saw it from a distance, right? And that's why we say the grass is always greener. And the further it is, the prettier it gets, right? Because now you see different shades of grass and it's just beautiful. So this is the idea that Moses is giving to the people and Paul is using this, all right? So the more distant the fence, the greener the grass. When we look for wisdom, we certainly don't do it in our own household, right? Oh, my son knows nothing. My mom, she, we just dismiss the people that we know because we know their faults. We know, except mom, she has none. Okay, well, she has some below Jesus, but other than that, none. We'll say that. I'm kidding. Anyway, we, we don't look for wisdom in our own household because we know that the people in our own household have error. Okay, Einstein was this really, really intelligent person. Do you know that they would not let Albert Einstein out of their sight? because when he walked, he would forget to look both ways. His mind was on something else. So was he wise or was he not wise, right? He's not smart enough to remember to look both ways. They said he couldn't set a table, all right? His mind was on other things. So he had wisdom in one place, but he's lacking it in another, right? Everybody understanding that? Okay, so we have, when we look for wisdom, we don't do it in our own household. Einstein's wife did not look for him for wisdom. She had to baby him along, okay? And yet he's this intelligent person. Where do we go? We go far away to a college. This college is going to give me all of the wisdom that I need to become a successful person and I'm gonna make all of this money. And then if I wanna to go to a really good one, I'm gonna fly over to England because that's further away and they have more knowledge. You know what I'm saying? It's, we have this in our head, okay? Even better, we assume that we can travel to the Far East and attained the enlightened wisdom of those cultures. How many people have done that? They've gone over there and remember the Beatles, they went to that guy and they, they look for wisdom there. They're going somewhere else because it's unique. It's not something they understand. And if you don't understand it, it must be better, right? So we looked to Japan for business acumen, right? That was more in the eighties, but we certainly did. Everybody was using, even the US military started using the standard model that the Japanese used for their business in the military. When I was in there, they got this big program. They spent millions of dollars on it. Japan failed and guess what? They trashed that and they got into another model in the US Air Force. But that's just exactly the way it does. We start looking in other places for wisdom, okay? We look to China for better Kung Fu and to Tibet for spiritual enlightenment, as if they were to the answer to our own failing wisdom. We don't understand what's going on. Those guys seem to have it all put together. I'm gonna to check them out. Even Christian missionaries get the far away logic or they use the faraway logic. I must travel across the seas to make a convert. Remember, Jesus mentioned that himself, and Christian missionaries do too. They say, I've got to go overseas and I've got to make a convert over there, which don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to diminish the work of missionaries, but are there people that need to be converted in Sarasota, Florida? Right next got them right next door, right? We got them on both sides of us, right? So we don't need to have the faraway in our mind in order to grasp what is near. We just need to grasp what is near. This is what the logic is, is being conveyed to us here. All right, one's mission field can be their own neighborhood, they can be their own family, which is very difficult, by the way. We all know that. If you have a family member that isn't saved, it's a real tough, I mean, it's very hard to get through their head because they know your faults, they know everything about you, and they say, that guy is a complete idiot. Like, you know, I've got an older brother that doesn't know the Lord. Why would he listen to me? Wow. He knows every, what's that? 
That's a powerful part of the reason. Oh, yeah. It's, it, I'm telling you. But I've got a middle brother. That, I'll tell you, just so that you know, I've said this before, is that my mom and I and my middle brother all met the Lord within about three months of each other, and none of us talked to each other about that. No, We, we never said oh, anything to one another, and yet that happened. She's listening to Hank Hanegraaff on the radio. Oh. She'd been in church her whole life, and Hank Hanegraaff kept saying, he said, what, five times every single 30-minute show? He'd say, you need Jesus. you got to ask Jesus to be your Savior. And finally, one day, she says, I need Jesus, right? And then I'm over in my thing right down the road here, and then Ethan met the Lord, and so we all met him independently of each other. But one of us still has him. Uh, 2001. Yeah. Anyway, um, so uh, 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 where was I? Oh, yeah, it was to them, uh, where was I? Neighborhood. Okay, likewise, the righteousness of faith is found right in the precepts of the law as fulfilled in Christ. Okay, you understand that the law is near. We can't attain it, but Christ could. Okay, understanding this, Paul notes the way faith-based righteousness calls out. He says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Moses gave Israel the law, which was near to them. It was right there. It was to them their righteousness, and it was handed to them as a people. All they needed to do was live within its precepts. That's all they needed to do. They didn't have to travel to foreign countries to find it. They didn't need to search the heavens for it. Instead, it was right there for them to pursue. And the law they were given pointed directly to the coming work of Jesus Christ. In fact, the book of Hebrews clearly demonstrates that the fulfillment of the Mosaic and Levitical pictures are found in him. You read the book of Hebrews, especially after reading the book of Leviticus, you find out, oh man, everything I read in Leviticus, it's all right there in the book of Hebrews. Not all of it, but you know, everything they talk about in Hebrews is coming right out of there, okay? He is the greater than of all of those pictures and types. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the law. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than the angels. Again and again and again, the theme of the book of Hebrews is greater than, and the greater than is Jesus. He's greater than all of the things that they discuss elsewhere. Now, under the law, they were given this righteousness. They were given the chance to attain righteousness, and none of them could. And so what did God do? And I may say this again in the comments in a minute, but it's on my mind. What did he do when they didn't attain righteousness year by year? Atonement. He gave them the day of atonement. That was their Jesus moment every year. That was the moment where the blood covered all of the sins of the preceding year. They had their sacrifices for individual sins. They had their morning and evening sacrifice. They had all these sacrifices throughout the year, but it was the Day of Atonement where they were given the grace that they needed. They were given the mercy that was undeserved, and they were given the atonement, the covering for all of their sins, the Day of Atonement. It was a day that was mandatory, and yet they weren't checked up on it, so it was a day of faith. Nobody checked and said, you know, is this guy out working or not? They're all inside doing nothing. If he's out working, they're not going to know it. Okay, it was a day of faith. So even in the Old Testament, they were saved by grace and through faith. That never changes in God's mind. Okay, so now with the fulfillment of those shadows, Hebrews clearly showing us, our weekly sermons clearly showing us Christ is the fulfillment. The shadows clearly seen in the light of Christ who came from Israel there is much less need to ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down from above. Such an attitude would be a denial of the incarnation, right? Christ has come down from above. To search for faith righteousness in heaven after the coming of Christ would then be to deny what he has already accomplished. 
the word is near you. Christ is near you. He's done the work, and it's documented that it's done for us. So we don't need to go into heaven. We don't need any extra biblical revelation. We don't need any further revelation. All we need is what is documented here, showing us what Christ has done, and a few books which are telling us which will come in the future for Israel, for the church, you know, these things that are prophetic, but they all point to the already finished work of Christ. Everything that we need to be saved and to rejoice and to grow in our salvation is found in this book. Now, when I use the term shadows, this just came to mind, so I want to read you a couple of verses from Colossians chapter 2. Say that it was all shadows. Paul says it was all shadows. Colossians chapter 2 says, okay, and I'm going to just start with um, verse 11, but I'm going to get you down to verse 17. So just take a second. In him, meaning Christ, you were circumcised with the circumcision without hands, okay, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul in the book of Galatians says you don't need to be circumcised in order to attain righteousness. And then he goes so far to say that if you get yourself circumcised in order to be pleasing to God, Christ means nothing to you. You are a debtor to the whole law, okay? So much for people that say that you have to observe this precept or this precept or this precept under the Old Testament. How many churches do that? These, these uh, Messianic churches, these um, Hebrew Roots Movement churches, they tell you that you have to observe the laws of Moses, you have to observe the Sabbath. They have never read and understood the New Testament they have never appreciated the work of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying all Messianic churches, but the Messianic churches which say that you must do these things of law. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> the what? Judaizers. Judaizers. Okay, that's right. If they say that you must do that, they have completely missed the work of Christ, and they are debtors to the entire law. So, he says that we're circumcised, not of the flesh, but, you know, in the heart, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. This is why we get baptized. If you've never been properly baptized, you should do it as long as you're physically capable of doing it. And the reason why is because you are making an outward proclamation of the inward change in you. I am being buried with Christ. I'm raised by the power of the Holy Spirit to newness of life. It is a picture and it is a public proclamation. And guess what? He's only asked you to do two things. Take the Lord's Supper and be baptized. Those are the two things that he says you are to do these things. And once again, if you're not physically capable of being baptized, I would never say to somebody, you need to do that. The baptism is already in the heart for you, okay? You've intended to do it, and the Lord is not going to not appreciate you for not doing that. I can absolutely assure you. They're not commands. They're, they're, they're ordinances. They're ordinances, yeah. We have two ordinances in the church. The Catholic Church has the seven whatever, you know, you've got holy unction and you've got this and that one thing and another nonsense marriage is one of them absolute nonsense okay two ordinances established by the lord no others okay so verse 12 buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through the faith in the working of god who raised him from the dead so you're showing that i believe that christ came out of the grave i'm also raised with him now this has happened already paul wrote that <clears throat> baptism is not something that is going to make it happen more it's not going to the only thing it's going to do is it's going to say that you are willing to make that a public proclamation. And because he said to do it, do it. Okay, but it's already happened in you. All right. Verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses, we were all dead in trespasses. We've all here admitted that. Okay. And the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. 
Okay, we have been made alive with Christ. We've come out of the grave with Christ and all trespasses are forgiven, okay? You don't have to go and sit in the Sabbath observing church or not eat pork or any of the things that the law said. Remember the dietary laws, if you didn't hear this, go watch the dietary laws sermon and you will appreciate why he gave those laws. It wasn't because the meats were unclean somehow, right? It was because a uh, if it doesn't divide the hoof, right? Remember that? Well, what was that picturing? Rightly dividing the word of God, the scales, every single thing that he said, every single word that he said pointed to the scripture and to the fulfillment of it by Jesus Christ. The entire Levitical dietary law solely pointed to the work of Christ. Go back and watch the sermon. You'll learn something. Okay, anyway, um, having forgiven you all trespasses, verse 14, I love to quote this on Saturday, Sunday mornings, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, and was contrary to us, speaking of the law of Moses, the law of Moses is wiped out. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In other words, Christ is what was nailed to the cross. Christ is the embodiment of the law of Moses. He fulfilled it, and he died, meaning that the law died with him. The law is dead. It is ineffective to save anybody. Okay, having, verse 15, disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in it. Okay, and then verse 16 and 17 are what I wanted to get to. So let no one judge you in drink, meaning uh, any of the Old Testament uh, dietary laws, food or drink, I'm sorry, food or drink, dietary laws of the Old Testament, or regarding a festival, which are the feasts of the Lord, which these churches all say you've got to observe the feasts of the Lord, or new moon, a monthly celebration in Israel that they were required to do, or Sabbaths. The Sabbaths include the weekly Sabbath, the annual Day of Atonement Sabbath, and there's one other, Shabbat Shabbaton, um, uh, uh, oh, the Sabbath year, the seventh year Sabbath rest of the land. Those Sabbaths, and guess what? The people, guaranteed, the people that observe the weekly Sabbath thinking they're honoring the Lord, do not observe the Day of Atonement as it is given in the Bible. And secondly, they certainly don't observe the seven-year Sabbath. But that's okay. They can pick and choose scripture all they want because they're not right with the Lord in the first place. But here it is, verse um, 17. All of those things that he just explained, which are a shadow, a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. That's why I use the term shadow here in the book of Romans. Everything in the Old Testament was only a shadow. And as I said in the sermon, if you have a shadow, you actually have nothing, right? But if you take the substance of the shadow, you get the shadow too. That's right. You get the substance and you get the shadow. In other words, when I take a chair and I carry it with me, wherever that chair goes, the shadow goes with it. Well, if I take Christ, guess what? Everything of the old covenant is in Christ. So I get that. I get it because I have Christ. And so it's fulfilled in him for me. I have obtained the complete satisfaction of the law of Moses, not on my own deeds, but because I have Christ. If you take the shadow, you get nothing. If you go to a church that teaches to do things of the law, you get nothing. But if you take Christ, you get everything, okay? You said something that was interesting. Wording was important. You said the law is finished. It is no longer capable of salvation. Absolutely. That, that's where the tripping thing is with a lot of people. They feel that, you know, not that it ever could save anybody, but, except for Jesus who fulfilled it all, but the, the the deal is is that they keep going back there thinking that that's a work that a I work. can do to somehow Merit better. Favor. 
or better yourself. Yes, Absolutely. Right, right. Can't better yourself through the law. It's not going to happen. There is no precept under the law that you are going to be better before God because of it. Right. None. So it's yes. the New Testament that will tell you how to live properly and living in that because some of the law is repeated in the New Testament. Guess what? That's there for a reason. Right. right? Because it's very good to do all that because that, but that, it's not going to save you. It's not going to save you. Christ so. alone saves you by Christ alone. Faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, let's see here. Christ has come down. It's done from above. To search for faith righteousness in heaven after the coming of Christ would then be to deny what he has already accomplished. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to repeat so that you understand it. You're denying Jesus Christ by looking for righteousness in the law. You get the shadow and then it's taken away from you because Christ believes in the shadow goes too. Okay, life application. Spiritual matters don't require removing oneself to distant lands, either for education or execution. Jesus Christ is available to all by simple faith. And his mission field is the entire world, everywhere. One can serve him wherever they are and one can fellowship with him anywhere and at any time. Such is the beauty of a personal, faith-based relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Great stuff. Okay, verse 10, 7. Or, who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? Good, almost identical. Verse 10, 7. Or is tying the question to the previous one. Who will ascend into heaven? The corresponding verse in Deuteronomy 30 is verse 13, which I already read to you, but however, it says, nor is it beyond the sea, that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Paul wasn't changing scripture, and that's another one they actually refer to this in when he uses his license to uh, cite something differently than the Old Testament. It is for a reason. They have that in here. They'll explain it very clearly. We should go through those. Okay, anyway, he wasn't changing scripture by changing the thought from going over the sea to descending into the abyss. The intent is the same, but the point of reference is different. The Hebrew people were at Horeb in the dry wilderness, and they did not have the knowledge of the risen Lord. Moses was using an example which they could clearly understand in order to, order to speak the language of faith. Paul is using the resurrection in the same way. Remember, they're in Horeb. It's a dry place. There's no sea. And he says, you go over the sea to find something you don't need to do that right the sea is this thing that they're not even uh, uh, it's like chaos to them in the bible sometimes you'll see the sea uh in the book of daniel it says he's mixing up the sea it's speaking of the chaos of the people of the world okay so if you think of they're on a, a mountain they're an established place they're getting the word of the lord you don't need to go over there to get it there's chaos over there but here's where the word of the lord is now paul is using the abyss okay He's using the resurrection of Christ in the same way as that Moses used the sea. The sea to the Hebrews was a great impassable body. The death of man is being spoken of in exactly the same <laughs> manner. He's using something that is impassable. All right. However, as it and if you think about that, remember they were standing at what sea when they left Egypt? The Red Sea, right? It was impassable. It was impossible for them to get across it. And we will be standing at the great sea of death. And if you 
go back and watch that sermon on uh, the passing through of the Red Sea. It is as clear as crystal what the Lord was trying to show us in that. There is an impassable sea before us and God is going to open the way and he's going to get us safely to the other side. The name of the place here, the name of the place that they're going to, and everything that is described there is to show us that there is no impassable gulf for us. It is all right there with God. Okay, anyway, go back and watch the sermon. However, as a connecting point, um, as a connecting point, the Greek word abyssan is used for abyss by Paul. The same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when referring to guess what? The sea. So he's not changing anything at all anyway. For example, Job 41 verse 31 uses the word abyssan or deep in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when speaking about the great sea creature Leviathan. There it says, let me read it to you, Job 41, 31. I see, uh, keep going, Charlie. Job, what did I say, 41, I think. Funny, I just read that a couple days ago, too. I'd be able to quote it from the back of my head, but I'm, I can't, so. All right, 41, verse 31. He makes the deep boil like a pot, the abyssan, okay? He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves behind a shining weight behind him. One would think the deep had white hair or earth. On earth there is nothing like him, which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. Okay, um, just a little diversion. If you anybody ever tells you that the uh, uh, Leviathan is an alligator, because you're going to read that in some commentaries, an alligator doesn't make the deep, the abyss on boil like this and it doesn't follow with a trail of white behind it you know if you look at a uh, aircraft carrier at night if they lose their sighting in world war ii the uh the pilots would lose their sighting in flying back to the uh, uh the uh, aircraft carrier if their things were malfunctioning or whatever what would they do they'd fly around until they could see this big white trail in the ocean and when they found it they'd just follow it right in and it would get them to the aircraft carrier okay that is what something that big does. It makes a big boiling line in the sea, and that's what the Leviathan did. This was a really big thing. It wasn't an alligator, okay? And the uh, uh, behemoth described in the book of Job as well, people will give you commentary. It's either a, a, a hippopotamus or an elephant. It says that its tail is like a cedar tree. It sways like a cedar tree. You ever seen an elephant's tail? It's smaller than my finger. Yeah, or a hippopotamus. He ain't describing one of those things. Plus, they're not indigenous to the Jordan Valley where Job was describing it. So you can throw those out. When you read those kind of stupid commentaries, just put a big X through them and don't read them a second time. Anyway, he's speaking about real creatures that he actually saw. Man walked with dinosaurs, okay? No doubt about it. All right. I know people will disagree with that, and they'll say, oh, he's using hyperbole, and he's using, he wasn't. He was described, this is the Lord in his word describing something for Job that Job wouldn't understand. If the Lord said that to Job, that this is describing an elephant, Job would have turned around and said, this, who yeah, who are you? He'd be still asking the same questions he was asking at the beginning. Absolutely not. Throw that stuff away. Anyway, um, uh, the Leviathan. Okay, the sea was perceived as the great deep in this way, even at Moses' time. At the giving of the law, the third commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The water under the earth is the sea. Passing over the sea then is com 
comparable to descending into the abyss for all intents and purposes. And so Paul grasps this Old Testament similarity and uses the imagery to connect it with the work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament when speaking of the seemingly impassable void of death. Searching for the commandment by a descent into the abyss, then, is explained to bring Christ up from the dead. We don't need to conduct such a search to find the knowledge God provides. It is obtainable in the work of Jesus Christ. He has descended into the abyss to search for our faith righteousness there. After his prevailing over it would be a denial of what has been fulfilled in him. Perfect examples every day in the news. People are doing what? They're trying to look into death in order to find life. I just read, uh, was it this morning or yesterday, a guy out in California has a company and he actually has asked to be killed so that he could have his brain downloaded into a computer so that he will live forever. That guy's reaching into the abyss, but Christ has already been there. We don't need to worry about living forever. We don't need to be Elon Musk and fly to Mars and you know be preserved out there or any of these other things. It is already done. That is what Paul is speaking of. We don't need to look into the heavens to find Christ. We don't need to look into the abyss to find Christ. He's right there with us. It's right here. It's been documented. The people saw it. They wrote it down for us, and now we can have that same faith. That is what he's speaking about, okay? We don't need to conduct a search to find God, uh, the knowledge God provides. It is obtainable in the work of Christ, all right? He has triumphed over it for us. As a resounding note of victory in this matter, Paul goes uh, cites this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you pay attention, I bet you that you will hear this again on uh, Resurrection Day this year, which is in just a couple more weeks. I think it's like the 1st of April. You'll probably hear it in the Resurrection Day sermon. Okay, so you know you can sleep through that part of the sermon if you want, or you can listen now and then say, I heard that a couple weeks ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I love to cite this verse because it is so marvelous. Let me see here, 15 verse 54. All right, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption, he's stating this is a fact. He's stating that Christ has already done these things for us. It is a done deal. It is a fact. When this corruptible must uh, uh, has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. We've already addressed that earlier in the class, and the strength of sin is the law. The law has the strength of sin, because if you, if here's the premise, just so you understand what I'm talking about, Adam is in the garden. There's, we'll say, 2,327 trees in the garden. If God put all those trees out there and left, and he went and ate of all 2,327 trees, would he be okay? Absolutely. He didn't give him any law. But instead, he picked one of the trees, and he said, you can't eat from that tree. You can eat from 2,326 of the other trees, but you can't eat from that last one. Now there's a law, and there is a consequence for disobeying the law. It is stated, it's explicit, and the law will be fulfilled if he violates it. Okay? The law, by the law, is the knowledge of sin. If he didn't give the law, there would have been no knowledge of sin. And when you violate the law, then comes death. So everything is tied up in the law itself. That's why if there is no law, no death, right? Christ is the fulfillment of the law. We have no law. 
Does anybody dispute that? I'm going to take you to a verse. I cite it from time to time so you remember this. <coughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it says here, let me see if I can find it really quickly. It says, um, uh, old things have passed away. Yeah, verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them. If there's a law, then you must have your trespasses imputed. But the law is fulfilled in Christ, and therefore he took the wrath of the law on himself, and therefore we are in Christ. He is not imputing trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We cannot have sin imputed to us because if we did, we would die but we've been granted eternal life. So sin cannot be imputed to us. Anybody that says that you can lose your salvation has not thought this issue through clearly at all, no way, shape, or form. They have not sat down and evaluated the work of Christ in its entirety. Okay, so having said that, if we do something wrong because the New Testament tells us not to do certain things, I know you're gonna get this. Gets, I lose rewards. I lose rewards, that is it. That is the only consequence. We are not going to stand in front of Jesus Christ for condemnation. It explicitly says that. We are saved. It is a judgment for salvation, but it is a judgment of loss of rewards or of gain of rewards. And that is it. That is the extent of our judgment. God is not imputing our trespasses to us, and it doesn't matter what the trespass is. People say, well, if somebody committed suicide, they can't be saved. That is utterly stupid. That is absolutely crazy. It says in Romans 7 that nothing in creation can separate me from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is a bullet something in creation? Hate to tell you, right? It doesn't matter what it is. You are not going to lose your salvation. But if you do it wrong, you're sure going to be an unhappy person facing the consequences of it. And I would never recommend anybody to take that course of action. The Lord has ordained our days. We don't. He has decided for us the end that we're going to have. Things can get miserable. People may kill themselves, but that is not going to cause them to lose their salvation. Okay, life application. Who needs to die in order to find out what is on the other side? No, not the faithful Christian. We've already been told what's on the other side. Christ has already gone there, and the word tells us of our final outcome. You're right to know exactly. I don't mean to dismiss what you said, but to know exactly what is coming, we have to die first. But to know what's going to happen to us, we do not need to die. It's already, Paul, I just read it to you from Paul. There's more about it in the New Testament. We don't need to die in order to know. Christ has victory over the grave, and thus we have victory over the grave. Stand fast in your faith and trust in the work of Christ. In him, death is swallowed up in victory. Ah, oh, wonderful stuff. Penny. Penny. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your hearts. That is the word of faith you're proclaiming. Ah, doesn't that make you, I, I've got, my, my whole body is tingling hearing those words. My heart is beating faster. It's the most marvelous thing. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now, I want to tell you something. When you see somebody that is a word of faith preacher, they ain't doing what this verse is talking about. They take that out of context and they say word of faith and I speak and it becomes, right? I 
proclaim that BMW and it's mine. I proclaim that Mercedes and it's mine and it will happen. That is completely wrong. We there's there's nothing in scripture that says we can can claim anything, absolutely anything except the blood of Jesus Christ. We cannot claim anything. That is presumptuous and it is begins with an S and ends with info sinful is presumptuous and it is sinful okay so never claim anything in jesus name that is absolutely the wrong way to do it they say word of faith ministries i'm sorry you don't proclaim in jesus name except what the word says okay so um paul has been speaking of the righteousness of the law and how that is bestowed upon believers in christ to show that it is an easily accessible path he has cited moses from deuteronomy chapter 30 once again it isn't too far away in heaven, nor it is, to be, is it to be found in the great abyss. Rather, the words of Moses show us that the word is near you. It is something which is right here, right now. It's discernible and readily accessible. I'm not going to read you Deuteronomy 30, verse 14 again. Go read it if you want. To show you how near it is, he says, it is in your mouth. The sense of this is that just as we speak our language without difficulty, so we are aware of the message. If we sit at breakfast with an old friend and talk about the weather, we don't pull out a dictionary and a thesaurus in order to engage in a conversation, okay? Instead, we speak as natural as if we're breathing. That's what he's saying right there. In the same manner, the righteousness of faith is this clear and it is this natural. It should be in us. It should be right there, near you, in your heart, in your mouth. It's just as if you're breathing or if you're speaking right now. If I said anything you don't understand, disregard that part, okay? Because he's talking about clarity, not my inability to be clear. Okay, now, if you're in Japan, I understand. You get on to a train and there's two girls that are sitting there, right? And they're talking. They just met. They just introduced each other. And one of the girls says, what's your name? Well, my name is Sachiko. And what's your name? My name is Hiroko. Right? So you got these girls. They're talking. Oh, where did, what did your mom think when they uh, gave you that name? And what did they do? They get out a dictionary and they start looking up the meaning of that name because it can be spelled in different ways. And the spelling of the name will give you the intent behind the name. Okay? So you could have the name Hiroko and it can be spelled three different ways and it can actually mean three different things. And you have to know what the parents were thinking. So that's not what I'm talking about. Okay? And when we say something that's obviously unclear or you're listening to a guy on the news and he says a word you've never heard, that's not what it's speaking of. It's speaking about a general conversation the word is near you Moses is being clear to the people of Israel it's right here it's right near you it's in your ear it's in your heart okay and that's what Paul is repeating as well the word of faith which is found in Jesus Christ is right here it's simple it's clear it's not difficult to understand and yet we sure muddy up the waters don't we okay so um, and he continues by saying it is in your heart the heart from a biblical standpoint is often thought of as the seat of understanding rather than the emotions as we speak in modern times okay when you see the heart as speaking about you know people talk about you don't need to receive jesus christ into your heart that's a heresy i've i've had people actually say this to me they sent me all these these things that people write up 10 page um, things about why you don't need to receive Jesus in your heart and uh, Jesus knocking on the door of your heart and revelation isn't speaking about faith it's speaking about something else right it's absolutely nonsense when he speaks of the heart it is speaking of the seat of understanding proof of that Romans chapter 9 verses anybody I'm 10 verses 
9 and 10. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll go there really quickly. 10, 9, and... Oh, it's right here. We're on that page right now. And that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. That's now speaking of an emotional assent. That is speaking of a knowledgeable assent of Jesus Christ. The heart is the seat of understanding in the Bible. You need to receive Jesus Christ, and you need to receive him in Paul's lingo into your mind and into your heart. It needs to be not just an emotional thing. It needs to be an understanding of what Jesus Christ has done. It needs to go from here, and then it needs to go down to here. Okay, that is what that's speaking of. You need to receive Jesus Christ. This thing about especially Reformed theology, which says that, you know, God regenerates you in order to believe, that is absolute nonsense. He doesn't regenerate anybody in order to believe. He asks you to believe, and then you believe, and then you're saved. We talked about that last week with that uh, commentary I read. Anyway, um, so we have um, uh, heart. Where was I? In your mouth, the sense, oh, in your heart, the biblical standpoint is the seat of understanding. And I'm going to give you an example of that even from the Old Testament, Proverbs. Psalms and then Proverbs. Hang on, Proverbs. Don't go too far, Charlie. What's that? When... Lord had them to read the law to the people. They, I can't remember whether it was the elders or the Levites, was out in the audience. Right. They, they gave the meaning of what he was saying to the people. Oh, yes. They, they, you know. That's in uh, uh, the book of Nehemiah, I think. Yeah. yeah, it's in Nehemiah. They read the law to the people, and then the people explained it to them. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's what you're saying here, that this is the explanation of the word. The explanation what of the word. you're doing here. Absolutely. Okay, now the heart. The seat of understanding from the Old Testament. And this is quite a few times. I'm just giving you one example. Proverbs 2, verses 1 and 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom, wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. The heart is the seat of understanding. It's not the seat of emotions like we think of it. We make a little heart and a, an arrow through it, and we have Cupid standing behind it with his bow drawn. That's not what it's speaking of. It's speaking of the seat of understanding. And once again, that's several times throughout the Old Testament. It's not just that one. And the sense of it is that the righteousness of faith is ingrained in the doctrine of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. If one has this knowledge, then they don't need to ascend to the heavens to find it. He's already come down from there. And they don't need to descend into the pit to find it. He has already risen from there. If one knows this, then they have the understanding in their heart. That is the wisdom, the, the understanding of the heart that Paul is speaking of. The mental knowledge should merely turn into the exercise of their faith. It is a step into God's revealed light, okay? People say that faith is blind. Faith is not blind. Faith is saying, I understand that this is presented in Scripture. This is the Word of God. God has now revealed this light to me, and I am going to step into that revealed light. Okay? That is what we do. We don't make blind faith uh, judgments about Jesus Christ. You couldn't. To say, well, you know what, if I said, um, let's make up a name, um, um, Marcus Polonius. Okay? Marcus Polonius is the way to salvation. Oh, Okay. Is there any understanding of Marcus Polonius outside of his name? Yeah. No. So there's no revealed light. All you're doing is saying, okay, and I, I'll follow Marcus Polonius, but you have nothing about him. But we have in Jesus Christ revealed light from God. We have the Old Testament scriptures pointing to him very clearly, and then he comes and he fulfills those things 
perfectly, and then they're explained by the New Testament apostles, right? That is revealed light. We're not making a blind jump into our salvation like we're following Marcus Polonius, whoever he is. We're following the risen Lord who is documented for 1,600 years of human history. That is what we're doing, revealed light. Just a little yes. <laughs> thought that just crossed my head. Okay, the heart is the seat of understanding. Right. And God calls his people hard-hearted. Oh, yes, hard-hearted and stiff-necked. <laughs> no understanding and their neck is turned. Absolutely, and we get hard-hearted too, don't we? Happens all the time. We make the... Hard-headed. Hard-headed, hard-hearted. we got it all. Translated into our thinking. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so it, we're stepping into God's revealed light, and thus the final purpose for which the law was given is found in his work, in Jesus Christ. He is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. Okay? It, this isn't difficult to grasp, but is quite often ignored by those who continuously attempt to reinsert their pet favorite portions of the law into the New Testament. You can't do that. You can't say this is New Testament faith while ignoring countless other precepts of the same law. And people do it all the time. Well, you have to tithe, okay? And I understand some people say that tithing predates the law. Law first mentioned, we talked about that a week or two ago. If you go by the law of first mention, you've got to go by every law of first mention, and your life is going to be a real chaotic mess, okay? It's not a true doctrine, all right? The law is what define the tithe. The tithe even under the law isn't what people teach today. The dietary laws, oh, we shouldn't be eating pork because, and what do Christians do that, that they say that they're not following the law? They say, well, I'm doing this for health reasons. But some preacher along the way has told them you shouldn't be eating pork because the law of Moses says you shouldn't. Okay, listen, what's his name? Uh, er, not Ernest Borgnine, the guy that uh, was the um, penguin in uh, Batman. Uh, um, Burgess Meredith. Meredith. I always get those two mixed up. Burgess Meredith, 98 years old, sitting there and he says, I eat five pieces of bacon every day. It is not a health issue. I'm sorry. It is well, not. He died. What's that? Yeah, he died eventually. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that bacon sure caught up to him. It, 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 <laughs> I have to tell you once again, go back and watch the Dietary Laws sermons, and you'll understand why the Lord picked those particular things. Billy Graham said the same thing. He says, I had bacon and eggs every morning of my life. Just about 10 years ago when this bacon thing was, you know. Oh, boy. He said Every day, bacon died. and eggs. Yeah, well, he died, though. It finally caught up to him. Yeah, that bacon killed Billy. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, okay. So, anyway, we don't want to just take a couple precepts out of the law and insert them and say, this is my doctrine. We get our doctrine from the New Testament, and specifically from the letters of Paul. Everything else is for our edification. It's useful for the man of God, as he says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all of that. But our doctrine should be set from the letters of Paul. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, and this is the Gentile-led church age. Okay, It'll be over very soon, and then we can go back and do all the law stuff we want. Whatever. Okay, Paul then says, that is. Okay, He's not saying that what Moses spoke to the people at Horeb was the same message that was now available, but it has the same force and effect as that message. They had the law, it was spoken to them, lived by them, and available to them. They merely had to demonstrate faith in God's provision through the law. When Christ came as the fulfillment of the law, it became the provision of God for the people. The nearness and understanding 
this nearness and understanding concerning Christ is, as Paul says, the word of faith which, which, with which we preach. I wish I could speak better. In essence, the message of the prophets and the apostles concerning the work of Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection and fulfillment of the law is the word of faith. Not claiming a new car or that house that you love. The word of faith is the work of Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection in fulfillment of the law. Okay, This is what God asks us to believe, and it is what restores us to him. Just as the law was God's provision of the past. The law was the provision for Israel. They had to live by the precepts of the law. They failed at the precepts of the law, and God gave them the day of atonement to cover over those failures. But they were expecting, we're going to learn this, especially starting this Sunday, is that Israel is a corporate body. If one suffers, they all suffer, or if they all suffer, then even the righteous will suffer. They were a corporate body, okay? When one person, I'm saying this now, so when you hear the sermon, you'll kind of grasp what I'm, I'm saying, because there's always this bunch of information. But when one person sins under the law, does that violate what the Lord says do and don't do for the people of Israel? Well, no. If they judge him and they take him out according to the law and punish him, whatever punishment is mandated for that, then no, it doesn't, because the corporate body has taken care of the sins of the one. And so it's a corporate body. Okay, When the whole corporate body apostatizes from the Lord, that is when all of the judgments of the Lord come upon them. But if one little town in Israel doesn't do what the Lord says, remember uh, Benjamin at the end of the book of Judges? Right? They didn't do what the Lord says. And what did all the rest of Israel do? They went in and they said, hand us over the malefactors and we will let you go. They said, no, we're not going to. And they destroyed the tribe of Benjamin down to 600 people because it is a corporate responsibility for the people of Israel. Okay, Salvation was individual, but salvation of Israel. And I'm talking about not salvation in the sense of salvation, but their remaining in favor with the Lord was a corporate responsibility. It's different in the church. We are individually responsible to the Lord, but you have the seven churches being addressed, so it's not really that different because the church will be judged as a whole, even though yet there are those who are worthy, they will walk with me dressed in white. So he's speaking to the whole church about their corporate responsibility, but the individuals are worthy in his, in his sight, even in bad churches. Anyway, we'll go on with that. I want you to understand that. And that's what's coming starting this week, Leviticus 26, 1 through 13. It's the promised blessings. And then after that, guess what? Bad stuff starts being told. This is what I'm going to do if you don't pay attention. Okay, so um, it's the word of faith. And um, uh, the term word of faith is used only here and could have one of the following possible intents. Okay, we've got five more minutes, and so i got to get this done. The first is that it is speaking of the foundation and the object of our faith. In other words, Jesus, his person, and his work is the reason for and the object of our faith. The second possibility is that it is speaking of the force behind and the movement of our faith. Stated plainly, I have heard the message about Jesus, and my faith-based response is to accept that message as true, calling on him as Lord. The third is that both concepts are combined into one. It is an all-encompassing word of faith. No matter which, it is Jesus. Unfortunately, in recent years, and I knew I was going to have this in my commentary, the term word of faith has become synonymous with an aberrant form of doctrine. It teaches that by exercising faith, 
One can be wealthy, healthy, and prosperous. It is a distorted teaching of the gospel which certainly enriches the word of faith leaders. If you've seen their houses, you know what I'm talking about, but which only waters down the message of Jesus Christ. Sound doctrine is abandoned in the pursuit of earthly gain. Be careful not to get caught up in this misdirected form of teaching. I got to tell you what, I know that there are people that are watching this right now or that will be watching it later and they will say, well, I like that guy. I don't care if you like him or not. If he is teaching the word of faith that you will prosper and be blessed because of your commitment to Jesus and you sending them money, they are false teachers. They are teaching something that is not true. There are very faithful people that are suffering greatly in Africa, in South Africa, in Vietnam, all over the world. And we're sitting here in America, fat, dumb, and happy, and expecting more because God is a cosmic ATM, and if I put in, I will get out. That is the furthest thing from the mind of those people that are suffering. Now think of this. Jesus Christ has just been nailed to the cross, and I'm, I'm going by the Roman picture of the cross. I'm not talking about what you might expect of the, the lentil beam and him being put on a tree that's already standing. We'll go by the Roman view. They've just nailed him on the ground to the cross, right? And they're lifting him up, and he's just about to go into that pit where the whole thing falls down, and his body starts to get torn apart because he's falling into the pit. Did Jesus Christ say, I claim my way out of this? Absolutely not. And we are in Christ. We are not expected to claim our way out of anything. We're supposed to live in Christ as he has determined for us. And if that means really bad times lie ahead, then that's what's going to happen, and we have to accept it. We're having a very bad ruling in Sarasota County. We made the newspaper, Superior Word made the newspaper this week. I don't know if you saw it, but they are going to change the alcohol laws. It looks I, it, like. It looks like it, and it's, it, it's probably going to happen. The commissioners have their mind made up already, and that means we're going to have somebody right next door banging on the wall while girls are sliding on a pole, and we may not be able to have and Thursday night Bible classes anymore. Why would they okay, do it? it I, we can't get into that right now. Okay, we have got two more minutes. Okay, it, it, it's done. Okay, it's going to be done, and it is going to affect us. And you know what I've been saying to the Lord for the past two days? This is your church. Yep. This is your church. Yep. Okay, if he wants us to move, he'll find us a new place, and we'll have to sell this, and we'll have to find the money to buy another one or whatever. But I can't get into a long discussion about it right now. I don't know what's in their minds. I have no idea, but we've got to get this done. I've got one more point, so we'll talk about it afterward. I just got to, I got to get the video done because if we go over the hour and a half the guy that does the work at night, he says it's more complicated. It takes him much more time to process it. So I have to be precise with this. Um, uh, yeah, word of faith. Be careful not to get caught up in their doctrine. Life application. Christ has come and his work is complete. The message is readily available to anyone who hears and believes. It is a message of faith and not works. Stand fast on the gospel message. What Jesus has done is fully sufficient to reconcile us to God the Father. 100% completely, absolutely, fully sufficient. Okay, we still have one more minute, so go ahead and ask that now because I just wanted to get that done before. Well, I just understand they're gonna do that to all churches. All churches. They say that it's an antiquated law and churches that count have their own parking lot and they have their space anyway. In other words, this church doesn't count. And the commissioners either did not read my letter to them, which I suppose is true, or they misrepresented it, which means that they're lying. And uh, uh, they said that we, uh, we're in here for a very short time. We've been in here now, this is our fifth year, okay? And they also said that we are uh, renting. Expect renting, we're gonna be out of here. So we own this building, this is our building. 
right? They are completely wrong. And they said, well, you need to have brick and mortar. This is brick and mortar. This is a standalone building. I don't care if it's in a strip of 20 different buildings. Every one of these was individually built. There's one lot across the way that's the last one in all of Gulfgate that hasn't been built. That's the way all Gulfgate was up until when I was a kid. There were empty spaces all over here. This is an individual building built by an individual person. So we, we got to finish, yeah, just in time. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful word that you have given us, the word of faith, which is faith in Christ, the work of Christ, and our reception of Christ. Thank you for that. And I would pray for anybody that's struggling with these doctrines that they would read your word again and again and again and just keep going back to this well and, and drinking of it until they understand them completely. And Lord, I would pray that everything that I've said today is proper and correct. And if it's not, that people would understand that and that they would uh, do their own studies to ensure that what they heard is correct. And finally, we do. We commit this building to you. It's your building. It's your church. And so whatever happens, we'll leave it in your capable hands and we'll just see where it goes. But like Linda said, we just don't understand why these things have happened. We don't understand the depravity in the world and why people would make such bad judgments. But once again, this is your world, and we're just following along with you. So guide us, direct our feet, and uh, help us to be good stewards of your word in the week ahead, sharing it with others. And in all things, may you be glorified through our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Boy, I needed that prayer. Oh, boy. Oh, yes, I bet. Okay, let me back this up, and then... Uh, I, I, I wish they would. I really do. But that's right. Yeah. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful week. We hope to see you on Saturday. We love you. Or Sunday. I keep saying Saturday today. Take care. 800 feet. But anybody can have a, a, a restaurant that sells alcohol. It just can't be more than 51% of their revenue. And so they even lied about that in their commentary when they said that. Read the article and you'll see. Oh, no, it doesn't matter. It's okay if we have restaurants that sell wine.